what's up everybody it's keith billick here with the picky fingers banjo podcast i am just getting home from a trip down to austin texas where i was able to play a few shows for the south by southwest conference with my band wilson thicket So we had a blast down there. I was even able to meet up with a couple familiar faces. And, uh, but I'm happy to be back. And more than that, I'm happy to be back in the interviewer chair. And those of you who heard the last episode know what I'm talking about. So hopefully it'll be another five years uh, before I subject you to two hours of me being interviewed again. Uh, But I do have a great palate cleanser for those of you uh, (laughs) who did have to endure that. Before we get to that, though, I do need to give a shout out to Joshua Perkins. He is today's Patreon supporter of the show. Joshua is a Hall of Honor Patreon supporter, which, of course, is the highest civilian honor bestowed upon podcast listeners. Josh first remembers hearing banjo music on the Deliverance soundtrack and went on to build his own banjo with his father from Stumac parts. So he has a great background in banjo and of course is continuing that by being a supporter of the Picky Fingers podcast, which uh, you can all do by going to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Your support is very much appreciated and you can support the show for as little as $3 per month. So if you enjoy what I'm doing, please head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and uh, throw a couple bucks to uh, keep the lights on over here at Picky Fingers HQ. Other than that, please track me down on the social medias. Give me a follow. Give the podcast a subscribe, like, rate, review, whatever your platform does. And uh, you can also contact me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with all of your questions, comments, concerns, and hate mail. freshly picked episode is a conversation with the great banjoist bill evans about his new album things are simple now even though we are going to cover things are simple quite a bit any of you who are familiar with bill's work know that at any given time he has about 14 banjo related projects going on and we did our best to kind of give an an all-purpose bill evans update so it's going to cover his new album things are simple but also a lot of his other projects and uh even some of his life updates which are uh interesting shall we say so it's always a great time when i get to chat and catch up with bill and uh he's always a wealth of banjo knowledge and great banjo music so please enjoy the conversation with bill evans about his new album things are simple Bill.
Bill, it's great to see you. Welcome back to the show. And I, I dare say, I, th I think you are the first three-time guest. So congratulations on your Picky Fingers hat trick. Thank you so much, Keith. It's great to be here. It feels like it's been a long time. I, um, and I am, I want to congratulate you for, for maintaining this series and keeping it interesting and, and, uh, spotlighting some players, an un unbelievable variety of players that have really, I've learned so much from from listening uh, uh, as a dedicated listener to the podcast and getting to meet players who are into all these interesting styles of banjo playing. It's awesome. Yeah, th thanks for saying that, and definitely like the pleasure is mine. It's it's a it's a real honor getting to speak with people like you and like you said the the variety of of different players that I get exposed to. It's just awesome. We have we have a cool community and. Um, let, we're, we're both part of it, so it's good, great to be here and, and get to talk to you again. And congratulations. We're, we're coming up like on a five-year anniversary for, for your shows. Did I see that? We just passed it, yeah. Yes, my my first episode was March 4th, so just a, a few days ago was the five-year mark. Awesome. Great. Congratulations again. Thanks. And you did say that it seems like it has been a long time since we we spoke. I think I think you're right. Although I I also tend to think that it's because you've had a little bit of a tumultuous couple months. I don't you know just because pe there are people out there who might have heard some things and and care about you. Why don't you bring us up to speed a little bit and just give us like the the Bill Evans life update? Well, sure. Oh my gosh, not to make things too personal, but I think a lot of people were aware, many of them through your broadcast, about what our family went through uh, with my wife, Kathy's illness. And and uh, I subsequently moved to New Mexico and married a wonderful woman who plays banjo. Uh, right. She's a physical and speech therapist by uh, profession here in our area schools. And we're in a rural area in southeastern New Mexico. And um, on January 6th of this year, our family was in a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty serious auto accident. And, uh, and uh, we were not at fault. Uh, luckily, no one was seriously injured, but Babby and I were in the car and her son, Josh, and his significant other a woman named Sarah, uh, who were in their, in their 30s. And, uh, and we're all dealing with um, various injuries. And, and for me, uh, I have a torn rotator cuff and a dislocated shoulder. And, and so we're oh, now wow. two months from the accident. And I am responding really well. The good news is I'm responding really well to physical therapy. Uh, I only had to cancel just one event uh, in March that I had going this month that I had going in Tucson because I wasn't sure if I would be up for it. And uh, and the doctors are all encouraged that I probably will not have to have surgery, but that will um, reveal itself in a couple of months uh, if I keep responding well to physical therapy. We're you know I'll be in the clear and then there'll be a decision to make at you know whether i the decision is mine of course and it'll be based on uh how the physical therapy you know has improved things and then what i'm li willing to live with right you know yeah and yeah. and uh in contrast to 
what is probably fairly well known among older people. <laughs> For younger people, this is probably like has no meaning whatsoever. But I'm discovering that rotator cuff injuries are pretty common in, especially in men. You know, because we're huh. trying to lift things and 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 do the things that we normally do. And for me, it's, you know, lifting banjo cases into trucks and, and setting up sound systems and things. But the recovery can, can be, you know, sometimes months where you can't even play at all. And, oh. and, uh, and so I did have kind of a low point a couple of weeks ago where I, I could not get my arm around a dreadnought guitar uh, without, you know, feeling enough discomfort that I didn't want to play. And then the banjo, because it's narrower even though it's heavier, that was okay. There was something about reaching around the instrument that was causing pain. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see what happens. And, um, you know, I, I haven't, I mean, I haven't really made it public. So this is the the big unveiling of this news. Uh, as a professional musician, I think a lot of us feel this way. If we have something happen to us like this, we don't necessarily want everybody to know because we don't want people to think we're canceling gigs, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And I don't expect, and I don't expect to be, canceling anything else. I mean, I've got um, a slate of banjo camps coming up, you know, through the summer that I love to teach at. But I have pulled way back in terms of some things that I wanted to book in terms of concert tours I have not done because I'm just not quite sure yet what the future Taking holds. Taking it slow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know... Um, Praise be to physical therapists. I'll just, <laughs> just you know, you know, but we've got a wonderful physical therapist uh, who here in New Mexico who works with musicians and artists, and and uh, my wife and I are both seeing her, and we go every week or every two weeks, and she we come out. I come out feeling hopeful and feeling a lot better that if I just keep doing the exercises she wants me to do, that we'll be okay. So, so that's that's the the summary of that. That's that's good to hear, and that sounds like a really. Uh, scary experience and i know we're all pulling for you to to make the best of that situation and hope you hope you're feeling 100 percent real soon man thank you i you know it, it was one of those moments where your life flashed in front of you and uh and mo i was driving my wife was in the front we were in a big pickup truck that we bought because we're hauling stuff around uh and we bought a cabin way up north and this is where it happened near a town called abiquiu which is where georgia o'keefe lived and painted so oh. if you've seen her paintings those are the landscapes around this little cabin that we bought so we bought a pickup truck because we we're always taking you know flooring and wood and just everything to to, to work on this cabin and and it was interesting how we had about my wife and i had about two seconds before impact uh where where we knew something was happening and i've never been in an accident like this before and 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 so you know saw the car that had already been hit by another car out of control coming mm -hmm. into us at about 55 65 miles an hour uh on a country road and that was a main thoroughfare though and and you know my wife and i we compared notes on this later the final thought before impact and then all the airbags went out was we were going to survive this <laughs> hmm. uh, and it was interesting that we both thought that because when uh, our medical people look at pictures of what's left of the truck and and our insurance people and stuff they said wow it's really lucky you, you survive so, but no broken bones, no lacerations, you know, so, so, but then, so in the, in the days after it, you know, you go through a lot of thoughts, obviously. I mean, that's, and, and also there's just a lot of physical discomfort, but, but I would, we were, 
there were moments where uh, we were euphoric just for having survived. Wow. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, I'm, I, I feel like I'm, my heart's beating fast just hearing you <laughs> retell that. And so I'm, I'm always yeah. full of high drama for you here, Keith, whenever you have me here on the program, <laughs> we, we just, we just get down to these essentials of life. I, I just offer this stuff because we all go through these things in our lives. Uh, you know, I think it's important to maintain that state of thankfulness, essentially, uh, because as the months go by and you get medical stuff involved and then you and then the insurance gets involved and then and then maybe you hire a lawyer and and it's really easy to lose that sense of thankfulness <laughs> because you're kind of swallowed in the day to day activity of things. But but as um, our family, we try to remind each other, hey, we are blessed that we you know, we're not more seriously hurt. And then I think the other message, and maybe this is a message that would apply for day-to-day life as well, is that we just, you know, be gentle with one another, you know, because we're all a little bit, it's an extra stressor on life. And, and so we could, we'll try to give each other a break, you know, and be kind to one another. And we should do that for everybody anyway. But, but, um, well, well you uh, seem in good spirits and upbeat. So I'm really throughout all of this, I'm, I'm, thankful to see that that's uh still how you are and and thanks wouldn't change anything about that yeah oh yeah oh yeah so let's uh let's get down to some banjo business shall we Mm -hmm. this interview was originally conceived of to to talk about a different project which we will cover (laughs) but we postponed it so many times that uh you have a new project to talk about uh in the meantime so so we're here to talk about your new album Things are simple. And when when was this released? It was like just a, a week ago or something like that? January 27th. Uh, oh, okay. January 27th. Time is flying and, past me. Yeah, yeah. And and both the other project is called The Banjo in America, and they're very different projects. That came out on July 4th of last year. And mm-hmm. both are artifacts of the fact that just in terms of my career, I had a lot of things in the can, as they say, you know, and then COVID hit. And, and, and so for various reasons, um, I wanted to hold things up until we, we saw where we were going to be on the other side of COVID. And then in some cases I was just dragging my feet, getting these things out. Um, (laughs) uh, so, so there's a booklet that there's a a small book or booklet that accompanies the Banjo in America project. It took me a long time to write that. And, and that project would have been out sooner, but things are simple was, you know, I started working on it three, four years ago, and oh, wow. and uh, and and hitting, you know, getting two cuts. The core band is a consistent band on the entire project, and they're my favorite musicians in California and the West Coast. Uh, John Reichman on mandolin, Sharon Gilchrist on bass. We all know her as a great mandolin player too, but she's a wonderful mm-hmm. bass player. Yeah. And Jim Nunnally, wonderful guitar player who has kind of a Michigan connection. He, you know, he's toured there with Dix Bruce quite a bit, the, the late Dix Bruce. Uh, uh, and, uh, we mourn his passing recently and, yeah. um, and the fiddler, Chad Manning. And these are, um, Chad and, and, and Jim and John, I have worked with for decades when I lived in California and I lived in California for about, oh, 27 years. And, yeah. and, uh, I had 
come up with a concept about 10 years ago called the California Banjo Extravaganza. And and this was a, a, a concert tour that we did every November, lasted about a week, and we played Northern California venues, and I would bring other banjo players in. So we've had several Steve Martin Banjo Player Award winners there, um, Danny Barnes, uh, Sammy Sheeler, Tony Trishka, Alan Mundy, Bill Keith, Gina Furtado, Tony Furtado, uh, Joe Newberry, Chris Cool. I'm amazed I'm actually remembering all these people yeah, so that's easily. Cool. <laughs> that's cool yeah, yeah, Ned, Ned, Ned Lubrecki. And, sure. and, um, and I love that tour. It was a way to, for me to connect with some of my favorite banjo players. And then Jim Nunnally, Chad Manning, Sharon Gilchrist, and John Reichman were the backup band. They, and, right. and, uh, and it was wonderful, you know, cause I got to interact with all the, these musicians are all busy with other projects. John has led his own band, John Reichman and the Jaybirds for many years. Jim Nunley has his own band, the Nell and Jim band. Chad is really involved in teaching there in the Bay area. And, and at various times, these folks played with David Grisman and Peter Rowan and, you know, we're all, you know, have various commitments. And then, um, with COVID in the year 2020, we didn't, we did, we couldn't do a tour, obviously, and uh, we ended up doing something online. Uh, and then in 2021, where and we all have to like remember what things were like in early 2021, <laughs> where where COVID was still with us and we were still really unsure, but but it was looking better because of the vaccines. Um, I changed up the concept of the tour, and and rather than having two other banjo headliners come in. Uh, I, Daryl Anger was available and he expressed interest in playing with us. And, and so I'm thinking, wow, this is like a super group. And Daryl Anger is such a wonderful musician to play with such great energy and, and, and a long history. And we all knew him because sure. you know, of his California connection. And so we changed it up to, and I was worried that if I had two banjo headliners, COVID might prevent them from coming. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and the, we have to clock our, selves back to those days uh, and or somebody might get sick and with the tour like that with the marketing and the publicity if one of my headliners was down it really changed the whole problem, thing yeah. yeah so so we changed it and I came we came up with the name California Bluegrass Reunion and Daryl played with us in 2021 and it was one of the most ecstatic musical experiences I've ever been involved in maybe the best ever for me. And I never expected that to happen at my age. Uh, yeah. And, 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 uh, and we all had a great I guess time. Keep, keep going. I'm, I'm curious as to like, was it the best music you think, or just the best interaction between like what, uh, to all what do you attribute that? Yeah. All of the above. I'm going to give credit to Daryl because the rest of us had worked together quite a bit. And uh, Daryl just lit a fire of positive force underneath all of us. And there's just something about being in a bluegrass context and hearing double fiddles Mm -hmm. that, you know, if you love this music, that's a very, very exciting thing. Unlike hearing double banjos, which is sometimes (laughs) alarming, but but sometimes a little bit, you know... (laughs) He want to run for the hills, but but Daryl did an incredible thing. For instance, you know when he committed to the tour, and this is not unusual with the way things work in professional music these days. But you're all spread out across mm-hmm. the country, so you start trading MP3s and you start trading charts, and maybe you do a Zoom call, but then you don't really come together as a band until one or two days before yeah. your tour, and you rehearse everything, and you you need to learn it before you come in if if you have enough time, and and um, and Daryl 
he wrote, you know, once we decided what we were going to play and the idea was to be rather egalitarian with everything. So, you know, John Reichman, of course, one of our greatest composers. It's so great to see him getting credit and people playing his tunes all yeah. over the world. And and Daryl and my tunes, Jim Nunley writes tunes. And so we were very egalitarian with, you know, we're featuring all of our original music. And Daryl wrote double fiddle charts to everything. Wow. Uh, you know, and and there's a, a song that ended up on Things Are Simple that seems to be getting the most airplay called uh, Along Came Sunny. And I had written the A and the B sections. And I said to Daryl, eh, you know, this is OK, but but could you write a, a third section that that is a little more outside than what Which I had written? Specialty, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Within the hour, I got written notation for two fiddle tracks and he had recorded it for me to hear and if you listen to that tune you'll hear the 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 way the recording starts off is the banjo plays the a and the b section and then the double fiddles play the c section and it's not totally out there but it is out you know and and it it adds a really cool aspect to the tune and so that was the nature of the of the work and then when we got together and played the audience response was was amazing and 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 what we were getting back from the audience was tremendous and we were all commenting that we had not experienced this sort of thing in a long time or maybe ever and when daryl says that when you consider who he's played with <laughs> you know i'm going to take that really seriously david i remember seeing him with the david grisman quartet uh, a quintet in Chapel Hill, North Carolina in like 1982, yeah. you know, and in front of hundreds of people. So his long career. And so we, we had a lot of sustained energy from that. And I was able to get that group into the studio. And so two of the tracks uh, on Things Are Simple ha- have Daryl Anger on right. them. Uh, so, but, but then there's also a wonderful fiddler from the Bay Area named Brandon Godman, who plays largely with Laurie Lewis. He had played with Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver before moving to the Bay Area. He is, he is playing with Chad Manning on two tracks. So we have four tracks with double fiddles that are all my yeah, tunes. And uh, But then the core, the core band is on the rest of the project. And so there's a unity to it uh and and i just love working you know with these musicians so so then what happened just quickly um to talk about the california bluegrass reunion a little bit more we all were excited about booking gigs for 2022 and we just you know it was just miraculous but a whole bunch of cool things lined up and we were on the road for a couple weekends in september from fresh grass up in massachusetts down through pennsylvania and virginia and we played ibma and then we played um the Three Sisters Festival of the Fletcher Bright families of Van and Chattanooga. And just the audience response was amazing. That's so great. And it was it felt very satisfying. I mean, gosh, it deep philosophical discussion as to why we play music. But for 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 me and I think for the rest of us as we get older, you know, you want to connect with people. The mu- music is a way to connect. I think teaching is a way to connect. Writing is a way to connect. Your podcast is a way to connect. And and uh, it was just a really great feeling to to have people enjoy what we were doing to the degree that we 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 do it and we do have a couple of gigs booked this year daryl is committed uh with a mr sun Mm -hmm. project that's his main band where they're recording right now as a matter of fact um a duke ellington arrangement of tchaikovsky's the nutcracker (laughs) 
adapted to string bands. So it's it's sort of like uh, it would be like uh, Daryl Anger plays Duke Ellington plays oh, Tchaikovsky. I love it. I love to, it. <laughs> to, to, to use a, a, tr- a trope that we all recognize in yeah. bluegrass. And and so uh, he's we have a couple of shows booked for the summer, one with Daryl and one with Brandon. And then we're going to hopefully play in the fall uh, with Brandon in California, and that Daryl is always welcome to come back in whenever he wants. I I felt blessed. I knew from the beginning that with all of our commitments, this was not going to be a full time band. And I didn't mm-hmm. want it to be because then the joy of it would go away. And I'm also of the age I don't want to be in a full time band. I don't think yeah. <laughs> you know I like staying home. What I see the band being, and I I guess I'm the band leader because I do all the business work, is that the California Bluegrass Reunion is a flexible enough concept where we could you know have a lot of different people mm-hmm. over the years with California connections. So when I think of you know other folks who I would love to be involved, I won't give those names away, but I think of people who are either based in California now or who were born and raised in California and and grew up within bluegrass in California, you know, that would be the criteria for joining the band. A lot of good people to choose from, that's for sure. We, yeah. Old and old mm-hmm. and young. So, so I, I view it as a concept that's going to keep going, and and uh, and then my other performance context. I'm still playing with Dan Crary, who will be 84 yeah. this year. It was great to see him receive the IBMA Distinguished Achievement right. Award last year. He's sounding great. He's he's healthy. He's doing well. Uh, and uh, we just recently played up in Oregon. Uh, we played a, fest, a winter festival up in Oregon and a house concert. And and we're going to be in California p- performing again in July. And then the other thing that I do in normal times is I tour with the solo show called the Banjo in America, which is entirely yeah. a different thing. It's a historical thing, and we've talked about that before. Where based on my academic work um, and my banjo collecting and my delving into historical sources, I try to present an entertaining evening <laughs> with music from the 1780s to the current day on 10 or more yeah, banjos. Yeah, it's so, a real good, yeah. and, and especially if people check out that DVD, if you just need a quick survey of banjo history in like an hour or an hour and a half or whatever it is, uh, that's a great place to start and just hear, hear the examples. Um, and I mean, speaking just from like a banjo nerd point of view, you get to see how many different banjos being played, a dozen at least, and some of them are very unusual, uh, which is real neat. Yeah, yes. Thank you very much. And, you know, it's impossible for any one project to capture all of it. And and there are diversity of voices these days. And that is really well, you know, I welcome that. And basically what I state in the little booklet is I know what I know and I'm playing what I know. <laughs> and, and that's all. And, and there's a whole lot more out there. Uh, but there are other people who are doing it and doing it really well. And I really respect the folks like uh, Rhiannon Giddens and Jake Blount who are taking these traditions and and really making original music. Absolutely. You know, that and that's not really the purpose of the banjo in America. You know, I'm I'm pre- it's largely a presentation of historical styles, although I do have five or six of my own bluegrass mm-hmm. interpretations there and that 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 but but a lot of it is I'm playing these pieces as they were written. Having said that, I'll go off on another weird <laughs> tangent. Keith, this is like, you know, you should be charging, you know, therapy. Oh, you'll get fees. an invoice. Don't but, worry. But it, what, 
Yeah. When I went to grad, I was in graduate school in ethnomusicology at the University of California in from about 86 to 92. And one of the things that was happening in classical music performance that got discussed a fair amount in graduate school classes is something under the general term that we call performance practice. And this was the era in which there were Baroque orchestras recording using the older instruments or newly built instruments that resembled the older instruments. And so if you hear a Bach Brandenburg concerto, for instance, played by one of these orchestras, the sounds are really different, or a Beethoven symphony even, played by period instruments. You know, in that case, that would be the early 1800s, if I've got my dates right. Bach, older than that. The textures are so different. Uh, they're, they're thinner. Hmm. You know, they're, they're not as heavy as modern classical string instruments. I loved it. I'm, I'm a bluegrass yeah. guy. You know, I like to hear clear textures. And, and being part of those discussions and being interested in that music and going to concerts in the Bay Area, these orchestras would come through town, made me think about how I wanted to perform this older music. And, and ultimately, um, you have to be true to your own instincts, and, and my own instincts are to play them as I feel them. So, so while I am playing these older pieces based on notation that one can look at and also learn, the interpretation is my right. own. And I'm not trying to sound like what it might have sounded like. You know, you listen to those old classical, wrong term, classic banjo cylinder recordings, you know, which you know are out there. And the music is very kind of um, brittle sounding because of the recording technology. So I don't do that. I try to, you know, make it sound good yeah. to me, you know, without changing what's written on the page. I imagine in so. some cases maybe you didn't have any musical reference to listen to uh beyond beyond just the sheet music so maybe you couldn't have interpreted it in a different way even if you had wanted to uh, yes and i think there's true we don't know what it, this music sounded like but we can read descriptions especially if we're talking about 19th century minstrelsy yeah. you know we can read we can read uh what what those venues were like and apparently they were very loud and people yelled and screamed and they threw <laughs> yeah. things if they didn't like the banjo you know and there were no amplification systems so you could imagine that the musicians are playing quite uh-huh. forcefully um and 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 again in that case i just elected to go with what made the yeah. music sound yeah, good makes sense um and i think and and for me um a big impetus for this project, and this relates to the work that I did in graduate school and the dissertation that never got written, is that the continuing African-American influence is there to be heard if the listener can be guided to listen for those ingredients of the African influence and the African-American influence. And so whether it's minstrel banjo Classic banjo, which is part of the ragtime era, and ragtime music is at root in African-American music, even to, of course, I, I think more of us are familiar now with the fact that Clawhammer styles have a direct African yeah. connection. Uh, even Earl Scruggs' fingerpicking in terms of the rhythms, you know, the cross rhythms and things. And so the dissertation that never got written was going to be a musical study of the continuing, an analysis of the continuing African and African-American influence on banjo all the way down. And so that, that's that been the theme of the show when I present it live forever. Yeah. So 
I try to accentuate those values in the performances rather than try to make it sound like a minstrel show from the 1800s. That would be very uh, unappealing <laughs> in a number of, in, yeah, in many, gotcha, many ways. Gotcha. <laughs> so th- those are various projects you've been involved with. Let's talk about this new record. Um, you, you already referred a little bit to, to Daryl's involvement as well as the other like house band, backing band. Uh, but let's maybe dig into a few of these tracks. So like right off the bat, we have the title track, right. Things Are Simple. Things are simple when you share your soul. It's a little bit of a departure from some of the other material on the album. We have you on guitar. You're singing as a duo with your wife. There's a string quartet. And I, I th- while I think the message of the song is fairly straightforward, it seems important enough to you that you named the whole album after it. So maybe just let's hear you talk about uh, what the message of the song <laughs> is for you and maybe what you want listeners to take away from it. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like we were really, I was just really hanging it out there to have that be the leadoff track because it's it's very unlike anything that I've ever recorded. First of all, I'm singing and then we're playing a wedding song essentially that my wife and I wrote. And then there's a string quartet backing. And, you know, as a bluegrass musician, I'm always very hesitant to hang my folk shingle out (laughs) or my singer songwriter shingle out. And I always, I always go back to the scene in Animal House you need uh-huh. to go see Animal House if you're a younger person. Uh, it's about fraternity life in colleges. And there's a scene where there's a guy on the porch, the guy on the stairway in the fraternity, and he's got like a nylon strung guitar and he's singing, you know, I give my love a cherry. And John Belushi walks by and looks at him and grabs the guitar and hits <laughs> him over the head with it. <laughs> so that's what I feel like I'm leaving myself vulnerable to that kind of treatment, you know, when I do something that is so hard on our sleeve. But we there was a deliberateness to making that the title track and then shaping the whole album around it because the the message not to you know please go and listen to the song everybody but things are simple when you share your love that's this message yeah i mean you know that's the whole that's the whole song right there i had already written a few tunes before my wife and i wrote that song and uh, but but the songs that had been recorded and um, among the first ones were road to rio doso Nesser, uh, the, the John Reichman tune, Gertie and Jake, the ones that only have one fiddle were the first oh. sessions that we did. And that would have been 2018, I think, or 19. And, and um, what, had, what was emerging in my own way of thinking about this, these songs uh, is that I, I wanted the emphasis to be on the melodies. And I, and I purposefully didn't want it to be a platform for improvisation. Uh, that would sh- you know show everybody's virtuosity or whatever, and and I felt like the melodies. I wanted the melodies to stand on their own, and and I didn't really have to say that to everybody when we were recording it, but they knew it, and, and I mean they're just so simpatico yeah. to my own. Everybody's a very melodic yeah. player, you know. John Reichman, Jim Nunnally's playing is beautiful on this record. It's very simple the whole time. 
And it's almost a study in how to play solos on the bottom three strings of the guitar. Uh, it's like almost everything that he plays is very bassy. And, and I asked him about it later and he said, well, I just wanted to give a different texture because everybody else was sort of in a higher register, you know, okay, fine. But, but his playing is very yeah. beautiful on this record. And, and uh, in my own case, uh, when I go in to make an album, I don't necessarily have the concept assembled in my mind beforehand. But then once you're three or four or five songs into it, it starts to take shape based on what you've done. And so in this case, I felt like I was writing songs that were not complex, that were based on strong melodies. And when we recorded it, the idea was to give things space and let things breathe. And then as part of what fed into that also and, and accentuated this, it's a, it's a whole cycle of things that can happen with a record like this and the musicians that you're working with. But we were in a studio in Berkeley called Opa Studio, and they have a lot of equipment that used to belong to fantasy records in Berkeley. And so we're using microphones and a mixing board and you know speakers and things that were used by everybody from Duke Ellington and the jazz piano player Bill Evans to Carlos Santana and Creedence oh, wow. Clearwater Revival Fantasy Studios F Fantasy Studios was a big important studio at, in on the West Coast and the whole mm -hmm. United States Grateful Dead you know but also jazz Miles Davis you know so we're playing in a point there's a piano there in the studio that Bill Evans recorded wow. some of his records on and and so the studio is so good that we we were all kind of stunned with how beautifully rich the tones were and everyone is very lucky to own very nice old instruments that were being used on this record so that fed into the idea of making a simpler record where we could hear the tones of the instruments. And this was all unspoken. I mean, yeah. it just happened. And so then as I assembled the album, and it's almost a, a thematic record in my mind. <laughs> so, so I'm communicating this to the people who are listening. Uh, and maybe they can, when they go to hear it, they can now connect to this. But these are banjo instrumentals. So how can you think of it as thematic? It's not, you know, you know, but 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 really, the, you know, I, I associate each song on the record that I wrote with something that was happening in my transition from California to New Mexico and, and our, our family's recovery from the death of my first wife, Kathy, and then the growing relationship with my wife, Babby, and, and then bringing our family together. You know, she has two kids. I have two kids. We're all in our thirties. I think for various reasons, we were all yearning for a, a, more complete, bigger family unit. And, and the greatest blessing of my life right now is that we have this incredible family where all four kids love each other, where we hang out together, we vacation together, we all, you know, we have plenty of stuff to talk about. My wife's daughter, Rachel, is getting married in April, and my daughter, Corey, is the bridesmaid. And we, <laughs> so that's just, you know, we just couldn't, couldn't be blessed more. And so the record is kind of about that whole process. So, you know, the track Things Are Simple kind of just lays out the territory, and then it goes to this track, um, Road to Riodoso, which was the first song that was composed, um, you know, out of all these tunes. Uh, Midnight in Rosine is a much older song, but but um, the other new ones, that was the first one. The Road to Riodoso is the road, you know, the road to our main town where we live. We actually live outside of Riodoso. And a, a, a funny thing about it is that when my wife, Babby, and I were 
our relationship was beginning, I came out here to visit her. And I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, which, and of course, Northern California has its beauty. And she didn't tell me at all about how beautiful it was here. Uh, she she purposefully downplayed it because she didn't want me to be disappointed or she didn't want to yeah. build up expectations. And I happened to fly into El Paso, which these days I fly into Albuquerque, but El Paso is south, almost yeah. at the Mexican yeah, border. Right. I mean, it is actually. And and uh, and if you drive to here from El Paso, it is desert for about sixty five percent of your trip. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, uh, oh man, I don't know. And then you start climbing into the mountains and you see Sierra Blanca, which is our 11,000 foot, 11,900 foot peak. We have a ski resort here and it was beautiful and I couldn't believe it. And, and she had not said a word (laughs) about it. And I, I knew after the first visit here that this is where I was going to live How cool. uh, you know uh, and, and I knew I knew we would be together I, we, we both had that strong feeling from the very beginning and then I knew I would be here and so then the whole record is based around that and uh, the Black Range Waltz again very sparse what ha- that was a waltz that I wrote for our wedding which was in September of 2019 we recorded it later than the wedding if I'm maybe 2021 and it ended up being really slow Listen to it, and compared to how we played it at the wedding, it's so slow that you can't even do a <laughs> wedding waltz to it. But 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 for me, that track is really unusual in that it, you don't hear instrumental bluegrass that has a lot of space, right? Especially not banjo pieces. <laughs> yes, yes, and and right. there's a lot of space in that track, and and I, again, I kept my own solo really really simple. Uh, and then the, the track Sierra Blanca was written after I lived here. A couple of the tunes on the record for banjo nerds are involved with an intellectual problem that I created for myself just to see what I came up with, which is playing in a role-based style as opposed to melodic or single string with in, a, in keys that are a little bit unusual and trying to create melodies based but still stay within role patterns. And so if you think about that, I don't want to say it's easy to write a really technical piece with a lot of notes, but I think sometimes it's harder to write something that has a really strong melody that's traditional banjo, right? You know, you know, yeah, it doesn't right. sound like Earl's Breakdown. So this one's in A minor then. <laughs> you know, like, are there any banjo-specific things to address that might help people get started on something like that? Wow. Yes. 
Yeah, and it's kind of an amodal. It kind of it it's it's it is minor, but but also it kind of works in and out of major. And I'll end one comment. I think that that it, that is something I just tend to fall back on a lot. That I think would be useful for anyone, you know, that, that is seeking to expand things a bit in a in a role based idea. If you explore chords. You know, the way that jazz musicians think about chords, for instance, they you you stack thirds. Mm-hmm. So you have a one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen. And this isn't gonna get as complicated as a Bill Keith discussion, by the way, so let's <laughs> we'll relax. But 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 uh you know, the nine can be flat or sharp, the eleven can be flat or sharp, the thirteen can be flat or sharp. All right. Well, if we think about what we do on the piano. I mean, the banjo, if if we were playing piano, the lines that we oftentimes play on the banjo, we would be using a very narrow range of the piano. Yeah. You know, like a banjo roll, you know, our, our, our range is an octave and a fourth, you know, in open tuning. And so a lot of what I think about and end up composing is I'll take some of those color notes and put them right in the middle of the lower octave. Hmm. So, so for instance, uh, so I'm fretting the second fret of the fourth string, the second fret of the third string, open second, second fret of the first string. It's a nice sound. Fifth string is tuned to the, the makes it sound like an A7. This could be a major. Could be a minor. Don't really know. Right. The, the lead instead of going <laughs> like a G instead of an intro so I'm really kind of working out of that position without the capo uh, same idea just playing the thirds in for the A minor on the third and first string chord there which we're not used to playing that much in G tuning but stay away from the fifth string and so and so other other more you know universal ways of applying this is like if I fret the fourth string on a G with my pinky fourth string fifth fret it's a G and then fret the A note on the third string then I've got a little cluster yeah. You know, like G A B. Yeah, it's that sus two sound is what we would yeah. normally kind of call yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, or a nine. There's a C major seven. Or an A minor nine. <laughs> you know, you know, the, you know, that's the cool thing about banjo is that things are I'll just use the word multivalent. I mean, a one you know, one cluster of notes can can stand for a lot of mm-hmm. things. I don't use these things in traditional bluegrass, but but they do come into composing a lot. Like, you know, a D minor would be that. Well, kind of you 
explore all the color notes, and then compositions will sometimes come from that. Yeah. And then Road to Riadoso was, you know, that tune. Oh boy, I haven't played this in a while. So the trick there was, oh, let's make the five chord the minor. Fi- yeah, the, the five minor, right. Uh, yeah, so four, five. Oh, that's really different. You, you know, you know, and that's that's how and that kind of started as an assignment for myself. You know, um, I, I sometimes work better compositionally. I don't write a whole lot, you know, maybe three or four pieces in a year. Uh, but it, oftentimes they're connected to an assignment that I'll give myself. And then that'll open up a pathway to think about the banjo. Uh, so this record ended up being, you know, role based. I in looking at all these tunes, there's I, I play little melodic segments in a few of the tunes but it's almost all role based yeah uh chinkapin hunting might and and nesser have some melodic sections but but and i you know that provided a unity to the project for me just to think about it in that way to have the cut sound similarly and and want to one another and then also just having this great core band to give a unified sound and the recording studio and the idea of these compositions that are based on melodies and you know, some of my favorite instrumental records are, I mean, one of my favorite instrumental records is Kenny Baker plays Bill Monroe. Sure. You, you know, and those are melodies. Those are beautiful, great melodies. That's what I tend to come back to as I get older. Hey, folks, just need to take a quick break to tell you all about my good friends up in Lansing, Michigan at Elderly Instruments. Now, you might be thinking that with Elderly's amazing selection and their fast worldwide shipping, that they are some big box conglomerate store. But no, Elderly has been family owned since 1972, and they pride themselves on giving you the customer service and personal touch that only a mom and pop store can give you. So the next time you need anything for your banjo, guitar, violin, mandolin, any stringed instruments, accessories, instructional materials, and I'm talking about whether you're looking for a beginner instrument or even a high-end, vintage, hard-to-find item. Elderly's going to have you covered. It's my first place that I go. So check them out at elderly.com. And don't forget to let them know that the Piggy Fingers Banjo Podcast sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, a site that brings you streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele you can learn bluegrass old time and plenty of other roots music styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in the world now some of what peghead nation offers is a great lineup of course of banjo instruction check out these courses beginning banjo with bill evans bluegrass banjo with bill evans Clawhammer banjo with evie laden wade ward style banjo with bruce molsky the banjo according to danny barnes and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, regardless of what course you choose, you're going to get high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes to play. Now, perhaps the best part of all this is that just by being a Picky Fingers podcast listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, all lowercase, all one word, over at pegheadnation.com. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to welcome a brand new sponsor, Sullivan Banjos. 
the Sullivan family has been in the banjo making business for decades and have earned their reputation for the highest quality in materials and craftsmanship. Perhaps the best part is you get the big time Sullivan tone while getting the personal customer service of a small boutique banjo custom shop. Chances are that if you can dream it, Eric Sullivan can build it. My main banjo is proof. I've been playing and loving my Sullivan custom banjo since 2004, and it just keeps getting better and better every day. So hop online and go to sullivanbanjos.com, email them at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com, or get a hold of them the old-fashioned way. Pick up the phone and dial 502-365-5022. And don't forget to tell them that Keith from the Picky Fingers podcast sent you. Moving on, uh, we, we've already heard from two Evanses singing uh, the first song, and uh, the only thing that could be better than two Evanses, I think, it must be three, <laughs> right? So we we have track yeah. five, Truy's Gone. Uh, t- tell us about this one. This is not not an original, but it is you singing lead once again. Uh, so yeah, walk us through this one. Great. Thank you. Um, my daughter uh, came to live with us for nine months at the beginning of the pandemic. She lived in in Brooklyn, New York. And I remember talking to her the third weekend in uh, March of 2020 on a Friday. And and we were begging her to get on a plane and fly here. And she's like, oh, no, Dad, it's okay. We'll be all right. We're fine. And and she is a punk rock musician who's now playing in alternative rock bands. Mm. And and her career was shifting there in New York as she got older. She spent a couple years in Berlin, and she was in some really important punk bands in Olympia, Washington in the 1990s. Oh, and then what happened on Monday, called her again, and she said, all the stores are closed. There's sirens everywhere. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't get any food. You know, the stores are all closed. There's no food on the shelves. I'm booking a flight. And so she, she and we're so happy glad that she did that. And she packed her bags for the weekend and stayed for nine months. <laughs> so, so, and, and so that, this, this, that track was recorded while she was here and she is not a, a bluegrass musician per se, but she has heard it, believe yeah, me, <laughs> all of her life. And it's, and it seeps in, right? It seeps in. I tell this story on stage sometimes about how I remember when she was about 12 years old, she came into my music studio and said, Daddy, I want to learn to play the banjo. And I was ready for this. And I'd gotten some finger picks and, and I, you know, we put the capo up on the seventh fret and I handed her a banjo so she could reach the yeah. chords. And I played Cripple Creek one time for her. And I told her that, you know, we put our finger picks on these fingers and here we go. And she played it back to me almost like note oh, for note. I didn't really have to show her anything. She was already playing guitar. And I asked her how she had done that. And she gave me this look of, you know, 12 year old disgust towards her dad that maybe you might've seen from one of your kids too. Like, you know, <laughs> dad, how can you be so silly? And she said, dad, I've heard it. I've heard it a million times. <laughs> and, and, and so, so, you know, singing bluegrass harmony and she knows how to do it, you know, just because she's heard it, you know, we, we didn't do it that much around the house when, when she was little, but we did play a good deal of music when she was here. And, and, and then this track, uh, it's, it's actually called the biblical boogie, believe it or not, is the real title. And then true, he's gone in parentheses. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a singer named Jim Sullivan, who was a pop, kind of a almost popular rock artist in the seventies who recorded a couple of records. And he is, 
he's gathered a cult status, especially among younger musicians. I'm, I mean, my my daughter and her musical compatriots know about him. He's famous for right on the cusp of fame. He just gave it up by walking into the New Mexico desert and he was never seen again. Wow. Interesting. Uh, I'm not yeah, familiar yeah. with this person yeah. or the this story. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, Jim Jim Sullivan. And that'll that'll sell a lot of records. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe. Um, but you know, and people think, you know, he passed away. But but he had recorded this song called Biblical Boogie that is if you hear my track, it's worth going to Jim Sullivan's version to hear his version because it's completely different. And Herb Peterson, who I just respect the world out sure. of. I mean, he's so an, such an amazing musician. Um, he was at Camp Bluegrass in Leveland, Texas one year, and, and they were honoring the Kentucky Colonels that year. And Roland White was there uh, and, uh, um, and Patrick Sauber, and they were, they were playing the music of the Kentucky Colonels. And Herb played this song in a songwriting workshop, and, with the, with the, and we stole the arrangement completely. And I asked Herb later if, if it was okay with him for us to record this because he had not recorded it yet. And he said, sure. And, and then we added the third part, but, but he turned it into something mysterious and it is a gospel song, but it's one of those, it's an interesting gospel song. But so the Kentucky (laughs) Colonels did play this one or was this sort of like a separate performance theme? No, no, no. This was just, yeah, this was just a songwriting workshop, but Herb was at, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm not all that accurate. I mean, I'm not being specific enough. Herb was there as part of the Kentucky Colonels tribute and Roland had asked him to come and play, but, but we did, we did bunches of other things during the week. And one was a songwriting workshop and I wasn't even there, but my wife was there and she recorded it. And she said, I love this song. Let's learn it. And, and so we did. And, and then we recorded it here in Las Cruces with our friends, Steve Smith, who played in the band Cloud Valley with me back in the 1980s with Missy Raines. And, uh, and then Chad added a fiddle later. And I love the song. I love the song. It, it's, it's a gospel song for people who question faith. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Wise men come, lend a hand, and they leave. Wise men come, they lend a hand and they leave again. All the fools they like me know, he'll come round again. All the fools they like me know, he'll come round again. Yeah, and always cool to bring like a slightly more obscure song into the the bluegrass paradigm you know we cool to hear something fresh and new yeah i haven't sung this song in a while but i'm thinking the 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 second verse wise men come lend a hand then they leave again yeah okay let me think about that (laughs) for a minute and and then the chorus is all the fools they like me know he'll come around again and of course you know that's about Christ returning in this case, and but it's just stated in such an interesting yeah. way. And so I, I like these songs that make you think, you know, and 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 make you just wonder about it. And 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 so yeah, and so we, you know, and and again, this is part of of the bi- biographical aspect of moving to New Mexico. You know, is is uh, you know our 
my relationship with my wife is centered around our faith and and um, and this song just just seemed just so interesting and no one had heard it and just the way it describes it it makes you think like what situations in my life am i the wise man and in which situations am i the fool and yeah there's a lot of fleshing out that can be done yeah well i had never i'd never thought of that before see that's the beauty of this is that you can you know turn it around in a lot of different ways and 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 examine it and so on that song daughter Corey sings and my wife sings and and i sing and and we um Recorded it relatively quickly, and and uh, and I'm proud of to have family on the recording. Yeah, of course, and I'll say right now, my my daughter moved to Los Angeles uh, maybe about a year ago, and she, her career is going great right now. She's on tour with this wonderful singer songwriter named King Tough, which is kind of the wrong name for the music, but it's T-U-F-F, and you would almost expect that to be <laughs> something really hard-edged. But it's very uh, kind of like Elliot Smith, Bon Iver, yeah, but it's very original music. Brian Some Wilson. Moody, moody and she's on stuff. tour right now. Yeah, and, and big textures yeah. and lots of harmony, and she's playing drums and singing harmony. And then she's in a band called Color Green, and their new record is coming out uh, in the fall. And, and that's kind of a Grateful Dead slash Beatles slash Beach Boys kind of you know, very melodic, very guitar oriented, not not any electronics, you know. And um and so it's great to have a daughter who's out there touring. Oh yeah, how exciting. <laughs> you know? That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So has yeah. she worked out all of the angst of her her punk rock days or has this just happened to be yeah. the yeah. thing? Well, she never had all that much. I'll, I'll say yes. She never had that much angst, but all, but boy, the people around her sure did, <laughs> <laughs> especially the lead singers uh, in these punk bands. But 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 she did she did kind of get worn out a little bit by it, and and I don't think it was necessarily a process of just maturing. But again, she heard a lot of that around the house. I mean, I was playing a lot of what we would call alt rock, uh-huh. you know, in the '90s around the house. You know, Elliot Smith and and uh, you know singer songwriters that were venturing into you know Feist. I mean, you know, music that we'd all heard, and she she loved that music too. Cool. So I'm just overjoyed that she's back into it. And I'm actually later this week, I'm I'm going to try to record some banjo overdubs on the Color Green record. They asked me to do that, and I'm really happy about that. And then I'm going to play with King Tough in Atlanta. We're going to be in Atlanta uh, around our daughter's wedding in a couple weeks, and I'm going to go and I'm going to play some banjo live oh, with cool. him. So that'll Taking be the fun. banjo to the masses. Love it. It's really, it's it's really fun. It's really fun when they announce that I'm the drummer's dad, and you know, oftentimes these audiences are made up of teenage girls in some cases, you know, with these bands and they all start screaming, you know, dad, dad, dad. You know? <laughs> so, so, so it, it's, it's, uh, more than I ever would have hoped for really. It's yeah, just great. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's go. You, you already told us a bit about along came Sonny in, in terms of, uh, Daryl's involvement, but let, let's take a step back and just say what it is about this tune that made you think of Sonny. Yeah. We lost a lot of folks, of course. You know, we're all aware of that. And many of these people were really, were people that I knew well and, and who influenced me. And, and sometimes it's through their playing, also just through conversation mm-hmm. and, and getting to know them as people. So Bill Emerson, uh, and a little bit of historical perspective, for 15 years, Sonny and I 
along with uh, uh, Cindy Sinclair, produced a banjo camp in Nashville called the Nash Camp Banjo Retreat. And it was Sonny's event, but we had we were able to get people to come to these camps because of Sonny that might not come to a typical instructional camp. So we had um, uh, J.D. Crow twice. Uh, we had uh, and we had Bill Emerson wow. twice as well. And and uh, and Sonny was there every year. And and so and it was just great to be hanging out with all these people. And and I recorded with Bill Emerson, uh, you know, spent some time with him in his Washington, D.C. home. And and then with J.D., I've worked. Uh, there's an AccuTab book that's out of print that I co-wrote with John Lawless. I've hosted many workshops with J.D., several, you know, maybe eight or nine around the country, including our own event. And so I value as much as anything, you know, in terms of my participation in the community and, you know, as a professional musician, the relationships I had with these people and what I learned and and uh, musically as well as just about the business and about being a person, about being a good person. And it is something amazing about hearing these traditional masters play, not in a recording studio, but they're just sitting around and playing. And 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 uh, I've learned a long time ago, you know, when I heard J.D. Crow play in his living room or J.D. or Sonny, that, you know, you could take these traditional tools, things that we think of as being based around Scrug style, and you could spend a whole lifetime, you know, Absolutely. with that. And and but but one of the things that Sonny did, and as well as J.D., is this idea uh, of using thirds and sixths to to um, explore the fingerboard. Yeah. And JD did a lot of slow song backup, you know, with this kind of idea. Which we're exploring, by the way, in my Peghead Nation course right now, by the way, uh, called The Banjo Style of JD Crow, which you can still sign up for. Um, and Sonny did the same thing, you know, he recorded a version of, um, he was always really proud of this lick. He, he played Sunny Side of the Mountain. Which is kind of a bizarre Spanish-sounding Herb Alpert and yeah. the Tijuana Brass lick. Yeah, it's got to the mariachi sound. But that's yeah. just six. Yeah. Well, in terms of the left hand, there you have to know where to put your fingers. <laughs> but there's not a whole lot happening. It's just a G scale, just a G harmonized scale. But it's the rhythm of it. And so there's a section in 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 the tune. Where I, d- I do a similar thing. Oh, gosh. I got to play from the beginning, <laughs> Keith. The C A section, the B section. And that, that's the end. and then Daryl comes in with the weirder part, to yeah. E flat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, which is not—it's kind of related in a way that we could talk about, but you know, it's got a lot of the same notes at any rate. Yeah, and Sonny, uh, and, Sonny also and, had and that, so, uh, he had that showpiece siempre, um, 
and yeah. was there was there more yeah. than that that had like a lot of that Mexican kind of sounding oh, influence? Yeah. Oh he, yeah, he had a few of those. Yeah, yeah. Some things he some things that he never recorded. And and again, for you banjo nerds, there is a homespun tape called "The Banjo of Sonny Osborne" that I co-produced, and he played a lot of those pieces on on that and the, and the tab has got it all written out and he'd written a piece called El Ronda which means the thief um and it, that was very much an element right. of his playing Absolutely. um and, and yeah yeah thirds and sixths and and kind of a spanish kind of sound he loved the music of Herb Alpert from a, know, for, uh and the Beatles yeah, as sure. well uh from a compositional standpoint you you mentioned that you had written two parts of the tune and turned it over to Daryl to to finish basically now most of us our conventional wisdom is once you've written two pieces two parts to the tune like you're done that's all you that's all you need yeah so uh in your mind what is it maybe specifically about this tune or or maybe just in general that tells you when a tune is done or not wow in this particular case well let me uh, let me broaden the answer of at a broad and then I'll bring it down. But, you know, I'm old enough to remember being blown away by the composition Jerusalem Ridge, <laughs> you know, which was new at one point <laughs> yeah. in time. And, 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 and that's, you know, four sections and people will play. There's a little interstitial thing that sometimes people won't agree on how long that's right. supposed to be, you know. So, so you know, on the Kenny Baker plays Bill Monroe record, it's different than what Tony Rice does, and it doesn't really matter. But there is something there, you know. And then there's da da da, you know. There's like these little things that don't go anywhere. Sometimes they're well, that's just why they, it's the jam buster, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's it, but it is a transition to the next section. So that you know that was mind blowing. You know, Tony Trishka was a big influence, but a lot of his tunes were just two part tunes. Uh, I have to say Jerusalem Ridge, you know, was a big, big influence. And then I made a decision a while ago that I wanted to compose things that people would think of as bluegrass rather than writing bebop tunes or or writing a classical suite or whatever. You know, I'd love to do that if I had enough time, you know, but 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 there's already a lot of great examples out there. And and so overall in terms of my whole career, I see myself operating within a broadly conceived bluegrass tradition. And John Reichman is very much an influence and an inspiration in this too because he's been writing tunes for decades that are beautiful that sound like bluegrass. But when you actually go to play them, there's always something mm-hmm. unique, yeah. right, to them, uh, and 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 so yeah, that was a high bar to aspire to, and so then you think about the elements that you can manipulate as a composer, and and one of them is form, and so form means how many parts, how many measures, you know, a lot of times you write a tune by just sitting around and playing banjo a lot, and you find something. Right. And then the hard work comes where you have to write yeah. the rest of the tune. I try to let my ear guide me as much as possible. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes I might hear chords first, and then other times I might hear a melody. Uh, and then sometimes the, the weird structures emerge by just letting your translating what you're hearing to the instrument and then you realize oh i've written something that's 11 measures. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever. But the melody is still there. And again, this is going to be really scattered, but old time music is another really big influence in this way too, because there are lots of crooked sure. things yeah. in old time music that that I think we can 
take advantage of is three finger bluegrass players. And again, that's John Reichman has been influenced by that heavily too. So I've thought about form a lot, even back to my tune Native and Fine. That's, you know, that's got kind of some uneven measures and it's a three part tune with a a part returning, you know, which is a little, little bit different. In this case with Along Came Sunny, the tune just didn't feel right. And so as I was envisioning it being played by everybody, it, it seemed like it might be boring after a while. And and then also I wanted to use this as an occasion to cement the relationship and the and the commitment with Daryl. You know, and he was so excited. And then he wrote something that's really, really brilliant. Because it it's it's along the same lines as using these bluegrass elements, but yet he's going out even a little yeah. more than I would have thought of. Yeah, it was kind of purposeful, um, but it didn't feel completely unsettled. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes, you know, you can really get into trouble with this because with Road to Rio Doso, uh, the A section, the repeat of the A section is is like two measures longer hmm. than the A. Interesting. So the A prime, and and so then when bands try to play this, they get <laughs> lost. You know, and and it's not fun to play. Uh, another thing you have to think about is you know how much time you've got to rehearse with people when you go out on a tour, if you or record. And in my case, you know, we we don't we rehearse the day before and we go and record. Yeah. You know that you know I'm just bringing people together, or I'll send them tracks early and they can work on it. But but you have to kind of gauge how difficult you're going to make something by. You want people to be comfortable. I don't want people to get into a recording studio or get on stage and be uncomfortable with something. I'd rather simplify it and have everybody, as long as the melodies are good, have everybody play yeah. strong and 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 be confident with it, rather than make things real, real complicated. And then you know we could be hesitant live. And a lot of that is the situation. Again, as I'm saying, is that I'm do, we're doing these quick tours, and after ten days, it's over. You know, uh, and then we'll we'll play six months down the road together again. Yeah. You know, so and we learn everything <laughs> over again. You know, so so so, so you have to also be. Yeah, you got to wait just long enough in between shows to let everyone forget everything completely. That's that's a bluegrass yeah. tradition, right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, right, right. And unfortunately, you know, and I, I, it was really beautiful for me with the most recent California Bluegrass Reunion tour, which was in November. I finally got to the point on some of John Reichman's tunes where I wasn't, you know, when you're learning a new tune and you're on stage playing it, a lot of times you're just tracking the chord progression. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, Oh my God, what chord comes next? Is it an <laughs> E minor or is it, or is it a C? And then you, your, your connection to the music is only going to get to a certain level if you don't get beyond that. Yeah. And, you know, luckily after playing for a couple of weeks, I, I, you know, I was like, wow, okay. I could try to improvise over this, uh-huh. you know, and I did. And then it was good. And John, 
smiled at me a couple of times. And so I was like, yay, <laughs> I did it. So, 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 you know, you, you have to be at home with the material, but a lot of times just the extingencies of touring and I'm not in a full-time touring band, you know, so we're just doing things that are a week or a week and a half. Yeah. And, but I'm thankful for that too. But you want to gauge the difficulty of the music according to how much time you have. That makes you sense know, too. To play. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Another cool banjo tune, Gertie and Jake. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about some of the banjo tricks you you do in this, if you re, if you remember. Huh. Um, uh, I mean, one thing that caught my ear was you have that like up the neck kind of a pull off lick. Are, are are we tracking what I might be referring to? Yeah, yeah, I know that lick. I've played that lick. Gertie and Jake are two dogs in our family. Jake is my border collie and Gertie is a dachshund that we adopted from my wife's family in Louisiana. Uh, and a, a funny story about the dachshund is that in the general area of where her sisters lived, <laughs> this is macabre. Um, so get ready. But, but there had been a murder and, and the body had been found of the woman and, you know, rolled up in a carpet, but she had a dachshund. Uh-huh. And this dachshund turned up at my, our sister's home, and they adopted it. So if the dachshund could talk, it might be an accessory to a murder. Oh, my. <laughs> but, but at any rate, the dachshund's been in our family now for five years, and we love her. And her name is Gertie. And, and a border collie and a dachshund, don't, they're not all interested. You know, you know if, if a dachshund and a border collie walk into a library, they're going to go to different parts of the nonfiction section probably. And, and uh, you know, they're d- interested in different things. And, uh, and so, but they get into a lot of adventures here in New Mexico because we have elk and deer and fox and skunks. We have lots of skunks. Um, so the song, you know, the title was connected with them right from the beginning. And it's a fast instrumental in B, kind of, you know, you think of things like Rebecca and stuff like this. Yeah. But I just wanted to write a chord progression. This started with a chord progression that I thought would be accessible enough for maybe other people to play quickly. Okay. Yeah. But with a couple of things thrown in, and there is a melody too. Uh, you know, it's hard to translate these things on a banjo sometimes, but... but um, um, there is a melody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and you know, the interesting thing about that for me is that I was improvising all three of those solos and it was live, totally live. I didn't, we didn't change anything about my playing on that track, oh, cool. which is unusual. I usually, yeah, I know. It was really cool. And, and listening back to it, I'm channeling a lot of Ben Eldridge in my ear. Yeah. You know, like, you know, I, I grew up, uh, Ben was one of my mentors when I was in college. I went to University of Virginia. But things like, you know... Like, ben would play these great things that kind of sounded melodic, but but were also very strongly role-based. Right. And so when I listen... I so, that, that, that's kind of a Ben Eldridge thing. Um, but a lot of it was just kind of spontaneous in the studio. That lick that you're thinking of... be something like that yeah. wouldn't it i've got the capo on so on the fourth fret and for those of you with your banjos in your hand i'm fretting the pinky at the 12th fret of the first string but i'm doing an 11 to 10 pull off on the second string with my middle and index fingers and then the fifth string yeah. is, is also part of the melodic content
Yeah, cool. Using the Lonesome Road Blues. Yeah, yeah, just kind of a cool thing. I, You know, that's been something that I have been experimenting with for a long time of instead of playing things melodically, if I'm still in the key of B here. Just using pull-offs. Mm-hmm. bluegrass you know right we do that all the time and just sort of expanding that palette a little bit to think about a chord shape so we've got g and we've got c so you you know you've got a bunch of different pull-offs i'm in the c chord like a c7 pull-off so i'm, I'm barring the eighth fret of the top two strings and back to g Nine seven. Those are cool. Yeah, um, like you said, so they're sort so of uh, um, melodic substitutes in a way. Yeah. And it's, yeah, so and it's probably a, a little bit easier on your right hand as well. Once you get the the flow of it, it gives you like a quick rest. You know, so so it's not quite as demanding. Yeah, yeah it's like. A total sellout or something. I don't know. It just makes it easier. I, I wrote a tune I, um, called Petersburg Gal a while back that, you know, 20, 23 years ago. It, it, that has a lot of that. Wow. Right there. So instead of going. something like that and uh and and i just kind of fall back on that quite a bit it's just something that just feels right to me you know what's i think really the point is is uh to maintain the drive yeah totally um I, i'm just remembering this right now this is really funny uh the first time we got together several several years ago and you heard me play my uh theme music to the podcast you had told me that it reminds you of st petersburg girl is it st petersburg girl or just petersburg girl Petersburg gal. Petersburg yeah. gal. Uh, and yeah. it's because exactly that. That's that's the exact technique I do. There's a, a the B part of my theme music starts with almost that exact lick. Um, wow. Well, eight- it's just it's just some, it's just something that's in the air. And you were talking, I mean, you made a very good point talking about it gives your right hand a break. Right there, uh-huh. you're you're playing the note in the left hand. So you do get a, a momentary relief there in the right hand yeah so it's a way to yeah reset in case you need a different fingering pattern to continue on and yeah a lot of, lot yeah. of stuff and and talking about gertie and jake there's a moment there at the last solo that i take where i do something really weird i don't know what it, it was in the moment and i and i thought that I was playing like totally out of rhythm. <clears throat> and it's something like a, it's sort of like a thing. I'm back in G, the cut is in B, but it's like, if you listen back to the recording, there's that little thing there. And the, and the whole, the whole time starts to float. Hmm. And, and I felt like I had really, really screwed up. I mean, the band held it together, but I, I, it just sounds like weird stuff. And I mentioned it to everybody. And they're like, oh, no, no, that's our favorite part. <laughs> 
So, so, and, and my wife also affirmed it. So that is something that just happened in that moment too. Yeah. And um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. And then there's plenty of banjo geekery to talk about with your, your version of John Reichman's Nesser, right? (laughs) So let's, let's dive right into this, the, the detuner setup. Right, and I'm not going to play any of that because I haven't played it in Fair a long enough. time, yeah. and it would t- it would take a while. The uh, this is a tune that I had played for decades with John, and he has a wonderful, wonderful record called "Out in the Woods," mm-hmm. that's maybe 23 years old now, and I believe that Nesser is on that record, and um, I had always kind of just heard it from the very beginning as as something that could be played with tuners. Um, the basic melody. Let's see. Oh my gosh, here, Keith. That's the basic melody. Yeah. So that you could hear the tuners. Yeah. Right. right. I never did this exercise. I just jumped right in to try to do it. But having played it like that, I can see that was all on the third string. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, so the tuners, of course, are most conventionally on the second string and the third string. And when Earl Scruggs and when we play the tunes that Earl Scruggs is most closely associated with, with the exception of Randy Lynn Ragg, you know, the tuner is set on the second string from B down to A. Mm-hmm. And then on the third string, it's G down to F sharp, sure. right? And so you could go into detuning, you know, quickly. Yeah. Um, and so when I came up with the idea of finally trying to do this, I realized that in order to get those notes, which was basically the A and the B back and forth, um, and then uh, then the kind of the, the, the G sharp up to A. What I'm doing there is the third string is set the way that it normally is set from G at the high stop to F sharp in the low stop. But the... Oh, I'm not sure I'm remembering this correctly. So according to your liner notes and according to what I hear <laughs> after having that in mind, it's, it's G up to an A on the third string. Yes, that's right. But then the Thank second you. string yes. is conventional. Right, right. So that gives you the... Yeah. That's the G to A right there. Thank you very much, Keith. You're such on you're so on top of things. view <laughs> the third string is g to a so that's pretty different yeah and then the second string is b to a and then i found that i could get most of the melody but then what i discovered was it's impossible to keep the banjo in tune uh and and because there's just something about maybe raising the third string 
to that degree and lowering the second string that's putting a lot of unequal pressure on the neck. And so, so in recording it, you know, we had to really be careful with that. And well, and that then, was not done in one take. Uh, you know, yeah. it was done bit by bit. There's different string tensions happening, but also you have a few moments where you have two different strings tuned to the exact same pitch. And if those are <laughs> off even a little bit, I could imagine that might be a little hairy too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I was brazen enough to try to play it live one year <laughs> <laughs> on our tour and you know if you're going to get something like that wrong it's really going to go wrong <laughs> and 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 that did happen a couple of times where i just had to like ditch it and play it normally yeah. but then i did but then i did play it well a couple of times and it was just a trip and and it's slower you know the other thing i discovered too is that it's impossible to actually play it that way and and play it at the speed that john reichman plays it which is medium fast so we ended up medium slow cuz it was just not physically, even if I'd had somebody else there tuning the tuners, right. we couldn't have done it. You know, it, it locked into that tempo. It's kind of goofy, but I mean, it is goofy, but I like it. You know, it's just fun. Are you aware of anybody else who has ever used a, a tuner setup like that in, in that way? I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that. However, I know Tony Trishka has has done, you know, a lot of different things. No doubt Bela has too. Bela's got a, that tune where the tuners are on all four strings. I'm sure that Tony has done this. Probably Ned Lubrecki as well. I, it, for me, it wasn't an idea of just setting the tuners like that to see what I could do. It was really more trying to play that yeah. tune. And I know that other people have used maybe uh, peg-based tuners in conjunction with, you know, there are cheetah keys and, and other apparatuses that are available. So I think my main takeaway from this album is that I, I need to research murder in Louisiana witnessed by a dachshund and also mysterious songwriter vanishes in the New Mexico debt. Like <laughs> these are, it's like an episode of Dateline that we're that that's that's kind of an ugly undercurrent that I had no intention of doing. <laughs> this is supposed to be an album about redemption and renewal and moving from California to New Mexico and and enjoying the joys of family. But but this interview has now destroyed all that for me, Keith. Thank you that's very what much. I'm here and for. I'm now look, right. <laughs> looking at the dark undercurrent. <laughs> we've we've had two exists. we've had two pleasant interviews. I figure third time's a charm. <laughs> time to time to tear things down a bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll make mention of a couple of other things on the record. Uh, the last two tracks are Midnight in Rosine and Chinkapin Hunting. And Midnight in Rosine is a tune that was on my first record from 1995 called Native and Fine. Mm -hmm. And Mike Compton produced that record. David Greer played guitar. And Stuart Duncan played fiddle on that track. Missy Raines played bass. And um, I just, the way it ended up, we, we ended up recording it in a way that, um, well, quite frankly, these are great musicians. They're my heroes. They hadn't really learned the song <laughs> very, very well. I'm just going to say that. And, and so we got to a situation where I was the only one that really knew how to play the melody, but I didn't want to kick it off. So I just, so if you listen back to that original recording, Mike is sort of playing around the melody. He kicks it off. And of course it's, it's, it's based around memories of 
being in Rosine, Kentucky, Bill Monroe's birthplace. So I wanted the mandolin to kick it off. And and then the way the track works is I maybe take the second or third solo and then I play the melody. And so you don't, and I thought, okay, that'd be different. You know, here's a track where you're not hearing the melody for a while, but that's all right. Well, it, it once the double fiddle theme emerged on this record, it just made a lot of sense to revisit it because I, I wasn't completely happy with the way that turned yeah. out. And then I got the chance to improvise, and I actually am really improvising on that that cut. And uh, and that was another one where we kept it as it was. There wasn't any need for overdubbing. So that was always that's always feels good. I think any musician feels like they've conquered you know conquered it if you can if you can do a first take improv that you're happy with that's great you brought us <laughs> it doesn't back happen to the all that often redemption bill you've yes you've, re- yes, you've right. redeemed your tune right. for the melody and yeah yeah, yeah. and 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 daryl wrote the double fiddle part to beautiful and audiences again really liked it chinkapin hunting just for those of you listening if you're a younger person you might play the chinkapin hunting that's in d yeah and and there's the old joke, how can you tell one tune from another? <laughs> By its title. <laughs> well, in this case, even the title doesn't really help because there are two chinkapin huntings. And actually, this is the tune that I'd learned from Daryl Anger, and, and although he's not playing on it. It was one of the first ones that we recorded it, and I just wanted to play it because I thought, well, this is a tune that bluegrass musicians might not have heard, yeah. or bluegrass. We've heard the chinkapin hunting in D. Yeah. Uh, but not the one in A. And the dogs liked it too, as of you course. can tell. They were they really approved of chicken honey. So and and so there's a connection with Daryl there, but he's not playing on the track. Maybe you can settle so. a a uh, friendly disagreement between my friends and I. Is a chinkapin? Is it a mushroom or a nut? It's a nut. Okay, thank based you. Based on my knowledge, it's a nut. We've we've yeah. heard both, and we always kind of go back and forth. Not that it really matters, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, I think it's a southern southern nut okay. chickapin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then that just seemed like a great way to end the record, um, totally. you know, with just an old time tune. And then again, thinking about how do you mix things up and still stay within the tradition. So, if you listen to the track, I came up with the idea of. In old time music, the tradition is everybody just, I, I'm being very general here, but, but because it's much richer than what I'm about to say. But, you know, typically in an old time jam, everybody might play the melody. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the guitar and the bass are playing rhythm. It's not quite that way, of course, with, but, but it's the way, it, you know, I'll just say that. And what happens in that track is that what we mapped out is that it's two, two instruments playing the lead, switching off. And, and so if you listen to it with that in mind, you'll hear some things that you might not have heard before. And then the other thing that we could vary, another idea, because the melody is there, we played around with the chords just a little bit at the end, which is another thing that old-time musicians do all the time, mm-hmm. young old-time musicians. And then, and then we also experimented with register. So as we were, you know, octaves, you know, yeah. and, and, and I'm even playing in the upper octave, which is unusual for me, but, but you'll hear the fiddle playing low, fiddle playing high, mandolin playing low. And we kind of map that out to, to, to give it, um, momentum. And again, working with the arrange, you know, working with the elements that you can work with where it's still, you know, uh, we weren't going to rewrite it as a swing tune, you know. Yeah. We wanted it to sound like bluegrass, but you could you could change the textures by, you know, pairing different instruments with, and they have their different tonalities, but also voicing the instruments in the upper octave or the lower octave. And so there's a forward momentum to it, and it changes every single iteration. That's so kind of a that was cool. A, a-
pretty typical like John Hartford type of approach, isn't it? Yeah, I've read a little bit about that and talked with with Bob Carlin about it. And I think I saw them do it a couple of times. And that's even more involved because even the rhythm instruments, the bass and the guitar could take these, (laughs) uh, you know, they could take the melody or harmony. We didn't go that far. But yeah, similar, similar for sure. Definitely. So uh, I I know we're running out of time, but tell us real quick what banjo we're hearing on this album. It really sounds great. And you, you said some things about how the studio played uh, a role in that but um yeah it's some great banjo tones so what which one or ones are wow. we hearing wow thank you so much um i there are two two granadas heard on this recording most of the record is with a granada that i had obtained in 2018 so it's not the instrument that i have been playing for for 14 years now that belonged to Sonny Osborne for a short while and it and this granada belonged to Jim Rollins, uh, who was a figure, you know, there's the banjo community and then there's the pre-war Gibson banjo yeah. community, which is even smaller and more eccentric. And, you know, we, and they talk about lots of weird things like the width of the wooden rim and, you know, yeah. s- you know, stuff like this. And, and, um, he was a good friend, good supporter. He unfortunately passed away in an auto accident, uh, that was not his fault. And, and, uh, I happened to, um, Charlie Cushman was handling the estate. He owned uh, many you know, old banjos. And I happened to be passing through town when the first batch of banjos had arrived at Charlie's and Noam Pakelny happened to be there. I actually was going to Charlie with, for another reason. Uh, and, and my wife was with me and, and Noam was very interested in a banjo that was there that was in Jim's collection, but, but we ended up playing more. Mm -hmm. And, and this Granada was in a case open. Uh, and, and, uh, I got up getting ready to leave. And my wife, whose name is Babby, B-A-B-I said, aren't you going to play the Granada? (laughs) And and I said, no, you don't know what you're getting us into here. I'm not. And I headed for the door. And she said, I'm not leaving until you play that Granada. Where did you find and this I, person? This, this is, I know. Every, every I know. banjo player's dream. I, I know. And there's so many other things, even much more important, that are so wonderful about her. But but um, but I kind of shrugged, and you know, my eyes went to the ceiling, and I picked it up and she recorded this on her phone and I played I always play something simple just to hear a new banjo yeah. and I played Little Darling Pal of Mine and Noam and Charlie were in the other room in Charlie's basement office and workshop and they both came in to the room where I was playing and they were really looking at me intently and there's no reason for either one of them to be surprised by anything I would play mm-hmm. you know uh, uh and they were, it was like, almost like they were staring at me and everybody's mouths were open. So I was looking at my wife and Charlie Cushman and Noam Pakelny staring at me with their mouths open. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I stopped and I just said, what? And, and I think Charlie said, I, cause he had not had an opportunity to set that banjo up. It had just arrived. And, and he said, I had no idea that banjo sounded that good. And then Noam said, and I had no idea you could play that well. <laughs> And and I and I looked at them and I said, "Oh, thanks, guys." And I put the banjo in the case and I said to my wife, "We're going now." And in the driveway, she said, 
if you don't buy that, I'm buying it for you because it's awesome. Wow. And then by the end of the weekend, you know, we decided to buy it. And the, the, and the reason why I was able to buy it is that it does not have a pre-war ring in it. Okay. And that's the critical value factor. And then, you know, playing it back in California, which is where I lived at the time, everybody that I played with said, oh, my God, you sound great. And this banjo sounds great. Uh-huh. And, and Jim Nunnally, who is, you know, co-produced the record and he's produced my other record, said, man, this, this sounds better. And so then, better than you know, Sonny's you have to Granada live. is what he meant? Yes. Yeah. And so then you have to live with, you know, that. Because <laughs> my soul is connected to Sonny's, the banjo that Sonny owned. I right. don't want to call it Sonny's Granada because that makes us think of his, his banjo that he played yeah, yeah. more. Um, and so I decided with this record to honor Jim Rollins and also just to experiment with what it sounded like. I used the Jim Rollins Granada. And I do feel like it's the best playing I've ever done. So what is the tone ring in that? Uh, it's a one-off ring made by Bill Blaylock for that banjo. Wow. And it, and, and it has a Frank Neat neck on it that's quite old, and the binding came off that neck recently uh, in a large section. And I'm like, I'm not even going to fix this. I don't want to take the, you know, you know, you, you get superstitious and banjo players can relate to this. I'm sure I don't want to take the neck off because that's going to change the sound. You've got to set it up. I mean, and there is something about it that banjo players really connect with. And, and, and I'll say this not to draw attention to myself, but just to show you how people respond to this banjo is that when we did a showcase at IBMA on Thursday afternoon uh, in the convention, and it was what an honor. I mean, that was a very high visibility thing. And we did a song that was a tribute to the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band because they were given a Distinguished Achievement Award. This is the California Bluegrass Reunion. Yeah. And great honor. I got off the stage and there was like a line of eight or 10 banjo players wanting to know you know, what I was playing and what it was. And they were, you know, Ira Gitlin, friends of mine, yeah. Ira Gitlin and, and Alan Holden and people that I knew, Pete Wernick, you know, and they were all like saying, man, you just sound really great on this. And so there's something about the ease of the instrument. And that has always been something that's mystified me a little bit. You know, the tension of the strings mm-hmm. uh, can be, you know, the neck angle can play into that, even the, the angle of the headstock, you know, but uh, it's something I don't understand. It's easier to play for some reason. Um, and there's something about the decay of the notes that allows me to hear better when I'm on stage. That's what I'm going to say. You know, that's why I can play. I just think more freely on it. And then on Here Comes Sonny and Midnight in Rosine, I'm using the other Granada that, I, that, that came from Sonny Osborne that he purchased from Tom McKinney. Yeah. And that's has been my main instrument for a long time and on my album In Good Company. Yeah. You know, uh, it's on that album and the albums I did with Fletcher Bright. Uh, and so you could listen and kind of compare. They're really close, but but the Jim Rollins banjo is a little deeper, a little deeper, and the notes are a little pingier. The sustain is not as great, and and so and so that, those are the two banjos. And and uh, you know again, really fortunate to have these instruments. So. This is a little bit of a of a tangent. Have you played Have you played Jim Mills's Matt Crow banjo? Very briefly. Okay. That's something that blew me away about that is how dry and short those notes are and i'm like wow that says a lot about the note separation that we all hear jim play with of course he's a a wizard anyway of course but 
Um, it's yeah. hard not to and, think that that and, comes into play. And in, in my limited experience, Yates banjos as a whole tend to sound that hmm. way. And I think that you know Ron Stewart has been involved in the development of that. And this is not this granada is not like that. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 you know, but, but it's just something where I can, res- it, the response is a little different in a way that not only the musicians I play with respond to, but banjo players that are hearing me and my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I, you know, I, I have to take that into and, account. And, and, and you know and that again, those banjo players thankful. have heard plenty of amazing sounding banjos in their day. So for that to yeah. catch their attention is great. Yeah. And and as it got pieced together, I mean, he had Charlie had not had that banjo in the shop for more than a day, maybe, and it turned out that a lot of people wanted it. Mm. I found that out later. I heard from people saying, you know, I was going to buy that. So you know, again, I was fortunate. But but thank uh, you, Babby. But uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I now play both instruments. You know, live. Yeah. Uh, I like both of them. I have them set up to be a little different so that. I can, you know, Might as well. go yeah. to one or the other. If I'm going to do like really solidly traditional bluegrass, I'll play the Granada that came from Sonny. If I'm playing more of my own music, I'll play the Jim Rollins instrument. That's really cool. So, yeah, yeah. And most of the pictures that you'll see of me, there's some new pictures of the new record where I'm in a Cloud Valley t-shirt. That's the, I think that's the Jim Rollins Granada. Let me bring it up. I don't even remember. <laughs> but it has, it has hearts and flowers inlay. So there you go. The Rollins has hearts and flowers. Yeah, so the one, yeah, the one on the inside of the, um, yeah, the CD. Yeah, that's the Jim Rollins cr- okay, Granada. Cool. Yeah, and that has the original flange too, by the way, which is very oh, rare. It looks so awesome. Because uh, yeah. um, uh, these flange ten- flanges tend to break. Sonny has even told me that on a lo- like Earl's banjo, he felt it's not the original flange. I I don't really know for yeah. sure, but they you know they were pot metal and they cracked under the pressure of the skin heads. But you, you could tell for sure that this is the original flange. It's way way bent. Yeah, <laughs> which is still holding cool. on though for now. <laughs> So yeah. It, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're we're out of time. Anything else we forgot to cover? We didn't really talk about the Peghead Nation course. Did you did you want to take a minute on that or Well, it, you know, just some commercial things. If you go to billevansbanjo.com, that's a great way to kind of just see what I'm doing. I have an email newsletter that you can sign up for through Constant Contact. I don't share the email addresses with anyone else, and that's a, the best way. I produce banjo camps in New Mexico in the month of April, uh-huh. and those are coming up, and I'll be teaching at the Swannanoa Gathering in North Carolina, one of my favorite camps, and Camp Bluegrass in Texas, Alan Mundy's camp, and in Michigan, at um, at uh, the Great Lakes Music Camp, I'll be there this oh, year. Oh, wonderful! And that's that's a great camp that I know that you've taught at. And um, um, Peghead Nation, I will. I've got five courses running, and I'm in the middle of a live workshop series with JD Crow, and one can still sign up for that. Uh, but they will be turning that into a course in the summer. That, and these are very deep dives. I've got a melodic and single string course that has a, um, about four to five hours of instruction in each way of doing it that starts simply, but then gets very complicated. So so if you're interested in getting kind of a, a, a methodical step-by-step method for melodic and single string styles, please check those courses out. And you can use the coupon code Bill E. And and try out everything for free for a month, except for the J.D. Crow course right now. And then I have a very kind of an advanced course on Earl Scruggs where we're what I love doing these 
courses around a topic or around a performer because unlike 15 years ago, we can go to YouTube. Mm -hmm. And, and, And so I'm doing a lot of transcribing from YouTube where we know the fingering. And so the Earl Scruggs course actually transcribes a lot of video that the student can go and see. And we're doing the same thing for the Crow course as well, where we're saying, check this video out. Here's what he's doing. And so the student gets to experience that. And I think that's that allows you to learn things in a deeper way than we could by just opening up the Earl Scruggs book back in 1975, which is what I used to do. And, And, you know, trying to learn Earl that way and listening to the records. So, so I'm still very, very involved in teaching. I do a workshop afternoon every year with Chris and Scott Benson and Ron Block, and that will be coming up in the fall. We don't haven't chosen our topic yet. And I hope to be out on tour once my health situation with my shoulder gets clarified. Speaking of Kristen, uh, how's that book coming too? Isn't that another thing that's you're juggling? Yeah, I'm just, a, I'm just about done. It's been Kristen's been, and and the Hal Leonard publishers have been so uh, so uh, full of grace to let. I've been so late on the project; it's been ridiculous. But it's about done, and then they've got to, you know, organize it and yeah, publish yeah. it. So so hopefully it'll be out this year. We'll see. Once I turn the materials in, which could happen in a week, um, um, it's then in their hands. Uh, and, that, and, and it's called 25 Great Bluegrass Banjo Solos. Kristen profiled 13 players. I've profiled 12. We have a transcription, a 2,500-word essay with interview. And then we recorded the examples in a studio at slow speed, Kristen and oh, I did. Perfect. And it's everybody from Bela Fleck to Noam Pakelny to Jens Kruger to Don Reno and Earl Scruggs and Ralph Stanley. It's impossible to get everybody. Uh, uh, but, um, but we hit a lot of high points and the, and the interviews are very interesting. JD's interview is actually very interesting. And it was one of the, you know, I did that, oh, maybe four months before he passed. And, and he talks a lot about Tony Rice and, and, um, who would, you know, so yeah, it's going to be good. Can't wait. If you, if you have it before, uh, Great Lakes Music Camp, I'll be the first one to the table to pick up a copy. Man, if we have it by then, I will be very happy about that. And I, again, I need to thank Kristen and our people at Hal Leonard for being so uh, understanding with me, you know, allowing me to take I, it's way, way overdue and it's totally my fault. <laughs> so, but I'm getting it done. All right. Well, thank, thank you so much, Bill. It was great to catch up with you and uh, look forward to being in touch and wish you luck with the the recovery and, and your gigs and the teaching. And I'll, yeah, I'll be seeing you soon, I hope. Thank you. And, and again, keep up the great work, Keith, and I hope a couple years down the road we can visit again and there'll be a lot, there'll be a, a ton of new things to talk about um, that, that aren't macabre, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> aren't bizarre. I don't know. Those are kind of interesting. So but whatever happens, know. we'll talk about it. How about that? You bring this. You you bring this out in me. You're like the Tom Snyder of uh, banjo interviewers. Uh, you have to be at a certain age to remember even know who Tom Snyder was. But at any rate, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> All right, thank yeah. you so much, man. Yes, definitely a compliment. All right, I love your work. Thank All right, you. Cheers, Bill. All right, bye bye. Thanks to everybody for tuning in to this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Extra special thanks to today's Patreon supporter of the show. That's Joshua Perkins. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself. The sound clips you heard, uh, all of them came from the new Bill Evans album that you've been hearing about titled Things Are Simple. 
Contact the show, pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com, or track me down on any of the social medias out there. That's going to do it for me. I'll see you all next time.